I think that you can make a huge difference by being a role model and just being you and integrating it where you can. I think it's also important to know that you can't do this alone. So who are your allies? Who can support you? What resources are out there? Change doesn't have to be huge, but it takes time. And I think that you have to celebrate often and give yourself credit for those those small wins of how, hey, I, I looked at this lesson plan a different way. It might be one strategy in a month that you've been able to, to integrate well-being into what you're doing, either for yourself or your students. And that can be huge. So it doesn't have to be this massive overhaul. It can be little things that make a big difference. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and Everactive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by Dr. Kate Story, an associate professor at the University of Alberta in the School of Public Health, to talk about comprehensive school health and why we all need to prioritize a good night's sleep. Just a reminder that one of the reasons why we are delivering this content by podcast is to give you the opportunity to simultaneously pursue something that would help you feel better today, whether it's something active and energizing, maybe you are feeling stressed and need to get that out of your body, or maybe you need to slow down and just do something restful while you listen to us. I hope that you can be intentional about how you use this time. I love asking the guests on this show about the habits that they have found to be helpful in cultivating their own well-being. So Kate, before we get into your background and expertise on comprehensive school health, tell us a little bit about the habits that work for you in staying well. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. First of all, it's really a pleasure to to chat about something I'm so passionate about and and hopefully provide some entertainment for those of you out there and for you to enjoy where you're doing something for yourself. So for me, I'm an avid runner and a, and a cyclist. So I spend quite a bit of time running. I, I run most days and I spend most of my time running in the trail. So nature feels good. Being outside feels good. Being connected to nature and dis- disconnected from technology feels good to me. So I've always said that the souls are good for the soul. And uh, to me, that's really, really important. I'm also a big cyclist, and so I actively commute to work by bike year-round, and I find it's a really great way for me to transition from home to work and from work to home. I can clear my mind, uh, plan for the day, or check out of work so that when I, I do get home, I'm actually home. So those are two things I do for myself and have been a really important part of my life for a long time. Thanks for sharing. I did my undergrad at U of A. So I'm impressed with cycling year round. (laughs) There's a lot of snow on those streets and trails sometimes. So good for you. You know, it builds resilience some days. (laughs) That's right. Tell us a little bit about your background and what your role is in the education context today. Why is it that you've come to be so passionate about school health promotion? Yeah, so I always feel that I need to to provide a bit of a disclosure. So I'm a university professor, so I don't work in primary or secondary schools, but I do work with schools. And I have some lived experience as uh, both an art and a dance teacher in the States, both throughout university and after university, I, I taught art and dance. But I would say that my passion for this work really started in my childhood. And I would say I grew up 
in an elementary school very much. And that really sparked my passion for education and for working with children. For anyone that was a child of a teacher, you probably can remember the days in your, maybe your parents or your grandparents' classroom. And so that was very much my reality. Both my grandparents were teachers, uh, as was my mom, who had an amazing career of over 38 years. And so growing up, I saw how much passion teaching and teaching kids to read brought her. The kids at her school were her own. And I can really recount the numerous hours spent in her classroom, putting up bulletin boards, helping with the ditto machine, the transparencies for the overhead projector, and just really being surrounded by, uh, I guess, the energy and the warmth of a school in a classroom. Uh, It really felt like my second home. And so I feel super fortunate and grateful that I've been able to combine my two biggest loves, so education, schools, kids, as well as uh, health and wellness. So that's always been a huge part of my life. I was a dancer growing up and a runner and uh, running and cycling is a huge part of me and my kids' life. And so putting those two things together is a real uh, dream job for me. And I always call it my heart work. Hmm. And I think the other thing is that I'm a big kid myself. I really like kids' energy, playfulness, and their honesty. So that's, I think, where my grounding and foundation was and, and why I got involved in what I do. That's great. And I know you've done a lot of research on how school-based health promotion can affect students. Can you talk generally about some of the more robust, enduring findings from this research? How does focusing on health promotion in the school setting benefit students? Yeah, I think the first thing that we need to really think about, and we need to explicitly say uh, all the time, is that well-being is foundational to learning. And we can't forget that. And we can't lose sight of that. So healthy kids are better learners. And for me, the other part of this is that we know that school-based health promotion provides an equitable strategy. And it really allows all children to reach their full potential. And it can really consider and acknowledge the social determinants of health and and the role of schools and how we can support children and youth in order to, to truly thrive. And given that connection between how well-being is foundational to learning the two are very much married. And so allowing youth to thrive in terms of their education means ensuring that they thrive in terms of their well-being. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of the research we've really focused on is that we've seen that students are really change agents in our community. Their voices are super powerful and can drive changes not only between their peers and within their school community, but in their homes and in their broader communities. And they can really advocate for what they feel Uh, is necessary. So we know that students are taking messages home that they learn at school about sleep, about physical activity, about nutrition, about so many different things. And so we know that when we focus on school-based health promotion, it is really moving beyond the school walls and impacting the entire school community. And I think that's pretty cool. Absolutely. The idea that students are spreading some of this information in their communities, whether it's with their parents or their grandparents or other younger siblings, the idea that wellness kind of begets wellness. What is required, do you think, for a cultural shift so that schools are concerned about well-being and health in addition to academics? I know you've done some research on this, but what factors lead to the most successful initiatives that are aimed at protecting or improving school well-being? So I do love this question, but the challenge is always that people want 
the answer, right? And I think, <laughs> I think uh, that this is tough. I would say that my answer is that it can't be a binder. So we need to move beyond the binder. And what do I mean by that? It can't be prescriptive. There is no silver bullet in which you can just pick up and it just works. But for some, that's really helpful to think about and that you really have to work within the context of your school community and acknowledge the strengths of your school community as well as the challenges of your school community. And so what works for one school community is not going to work for another. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to think about what is required uh, in a different way. So it doesn't have to be a specific program or policy or one thing. It can be more about the relationships or what we know are some of the essential components of taking a comprehensive school health approach. And so that can be looking at the role of students, which we've already talked about. It can be looking at the role of the administrator and how they're actually leading the change or driving the change in your school community. And it can be thinking about how can, how can you, uh, as an educator, take the next step to learning more about comprehensive school health or, or creating healthy school communities through professional development and learning. So this is always a challenging question of how do you get to that cultural shift? And it's been a question that I've been asking for the last 10 years. <laughs> and what we've learned is that there are some factors that are essential to ensuring success. But the reality is that they're more of conditions of success and less about specific policy or practice examples. That's an important way to frame it, that because it's about culture, not only is it location specific, so it's specific to the individual school, but it also is affected by multiple stakeholders and it takes time. Any cultural shift is going to take time. But I like how you emphasize the role of relationships and a readiness to learn and look at what your school is doing right and how it could be improved with respect to well-being. Absolutely. Teachers and students are only two parts of a school community. We've mentioned a little bit about the others that are involved. How can we include parents, staff, community partners, and others in promoting school health? And why do you think it's important to remember that whole school approach? So we, you just mentioned it. It's all about the relationships. It's all about building those relationships and forming those relationships. And this takes time. Mm -hmm. um, so I think sometimes that's overwhelming. If you're an educator and you're thinking, oh, man, I have to do all this and build relationships. <laughs> but I think you can find your allies and find your village and engage the broader school community through those passionate students. We often hear about how hard it is to get parents engaged. And certainly I appreciate that. I, I mean, I'm a parent of two young kids and it's hard to be engaged in the school community at times. And I'm all in. <laughs> um, but if my child came home and was excited about something, I'm probably going to be excited about it as well. And and they are the change makers and their voices are just so powerful. So get them involved to get everybody else involved would be kind of my first, I guess, tip or strategy. Mm -hmm. And without the whole school community, we can't truly shift that school culture. It just it does just become an add on or another binder. So I would say find your allies. You don't have to do this yourself and you can't do this yourself. There's a ton of resources and organizations out there that are there to help you but also recognize and give yourself empathy that it's it's going to take time and that small changes can make a huge difference. So it doesn't have to be this huge thing or these massive changes it can be it can be simple and that can have a lasting impact. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast the other day from the educators of Educom and they were sharing how 
just adding little things into their school routine. Like I think they started the day off with a little bit of silence and maybe a meditation. And after lunch, she gave them all 10 minutes to journal or draw to just kind of get out whatever their feelings were on the recess period and the day so far. And in their agenda, just before they went home, they would write three things that they were grateful for. Small things, but she said that made a huge difference to their ability to emotionally regulate and thus affect the the whole class climate. So I think it can be really small shifts in a certain direction. It's that intention of why you're doing something and looking towards making that student's day a little bit better. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Could you inspire us a little bit with some of the success stories that you have seen through your research? What programs or changes have you seen that led to a positive change? And again, we know that it's not about copying the strategy, but I do think we can learn from others' successes and be inspired by the changes that they've created. Yeah. So what inspires me are are the stories, especially from youth, uh, but also from all the school community stakeholders, those small changes that make a big difference, that seed that was planted that has grown. And so I was thinking about this question and thinking about what over the years has inspired me. And it's the student that did a taste testing at school of, I think, a cantaloupe, and then realized that they could do other things in their life that they thought would be hard because Sometimes you just try it and you might like it or you can do it. And that was taste testing of a piece of fruit. So, you know, (laughs) that's one example. It's the student that realized that through something their teacher said at school about how being active could help them sleep, that they realized, hey, my whole family could sleep better too. So let's all be active together and maybe we'll all sleep better. And one of the last ones is a teacher champion that hosted a family night at the school and created a sense of belonging for the school community so that the school community was just a place to have fun and a place where reconciliation could really happen and and wasn't associated with the negative uh, history that schools had. So those are uh, little little nuggets of stories, uh, Mm -hmm. but those are things that have, have lasted with me and are examples of how within bigger projects that are looking at how we create a healthy school community and shifting school culture that collectively those pieces is how change happens. And so those are some of the things that have inspired me uh, over over the years. So that's interesting that the cantaloupe test taught that student more than just that they liked cantaloupe. Yeah. And I think that's where the cross-curricular links come. Sometimes we think about all of these different components in isolation, but the reality is that they're not, they're connected. And so taste testing can be so much more than tasting cantaloupe. (laughs) So you've done some research on the role sleep plays in our health. Can you talk a little bit about the multiple reasons getting enough sleep can help all of us, students and teachers and admin? Absolutely. So I am a huge advocate of sleep. (laughs) I think it's just so important. And the way that I got into working with sleep is because I was hearing from teachers all the time that it's hard to do anything when kids are tired. Mm. So within the context of creating healthy school communities, it's hard to promote physical activity if the kids are too tired to move. It's hard to promote healthy eating if they're consuming caffeine to try to keep them awake. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mental health can suffer. So sleep really became a priority because of that. However, I'd say, first of all, you have to put your oxygen mask on first. As a teacher, 
you can't be a great teacher if you're sleep deprived too. And I know sometimes that's really hard, uh, but I think really thinking of ways to take care of yourself so that you can take care of the kids that you teach too. So from a, you know, outcome standpoint, sleep is an amazing coping mechanism. It's a protective factor against stressors and worries, helps our immune system, stress, emotions, energy, focus, physical and mental health. And it really impacts and is, you know, there's so many connections between sleep and so many other outcomes for health and well-being. Mm-hmm. I think you're so right that sleep is a powerful strategy to focus on because it affects multiple dimensions of our well-being. And the other thing that I like about focusing on sleep is that it's free. We <laughs> There's no special equipment or extra trips to the grocery store that are required. It's about a mindset and developing those habits, which we'll get into. So how do we know if we are getting enough sleep and what are the common reasons that we might not be? Yeah, it's a good question. Everybody, you know, there's there's recommendations. So I would say sometimes we don't know what the, the guidelines are. And so the 24-hour movement guidelines have been released for all age age groups, and it recognizes the interconnectedness of, of all of the different movement behaviors. And so look and see, you know, how much sleep you require or the recommendation is for you. Mm-hmm. And, and take a look at how much sleep you think that you're actually getting. So I think we need to look at quantity, but we also need to look at quality. Just because you're in bed doesn't necessarily mean you're sleeping. And so think about, do you struggle to fall asleep? Do you struggle to stay asleep? Do you need an alarm to wake up? Are you constantly tired? Do you need to nap? So those are all different things that we can look at within our own health uh, and our own sleep. So what are the reasons why we might not be getting enough sleep? I always, I, I always say technology, 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 <laughs> but certainly technology is is one factor for why, especially children and youth might not be getting enough sleep. Get the technology out of the bedroom, first and mm-hmm. foremost. Try to turn it off well before you're going to bed. But the other reasons are we don't prioritize sleep in our society. I always say, you know, there was there's the sleep one-upmanship of language around sleep of, oh, I only slept three hours last night. Oh, I only slept four, right? Like we need to change that. We need to change that dialogue mm-hmm. to celebrate sleep. And I would say both busy schedules and lack of schedules. So busy schedules have led to us not necessarily getting enough sleep if sports practices are late at night. Uh, that's a real struggle as well as lack of schedules. For example, if you're working from home, maybe there's not a consistent start and end to your day. And so there's lack of scheduling throughout. So those are all some reasons why. We also know, again, not getting enough physical activity can also affect our sleep too. So there's a lot of different factors, but I would say look at some of those first. Mm -hmm. I was reflecting on this last night because I should have slept more. It wasn't, (laughs) I knew I was interviewing you today and I have another interview as well. So I was doing some work and I was working on editing one of these podcasts and it was hard for me to stop the task. And it made me think about how the mindset of not ending work at a certain time was affecting my sleep because then after I had done some work, half an hour of being with my husband watching TV didn't feel like enough relaxation. And so we wanted to stay up later. And I was reflecting on how the preparation for a good night's sleep starts earlier than we realize. And it is about a mindset of, I need to prioritize relaxation earlier in my day so that I am ready and feel like I've had a full, enjoyable day 
by the time it's time for bed. A hundred percent for sure. Yes. I, I definitely agree. And I think we often think about a, a evening routine. I have two young kids and I, you think about a bedtime routine, mm-hmm. especially when they're babies. And then we start losing sight of that as adults. And so my kids still have a bedtime routine. They're four and seven. But it's equally as important for us as adults to think about what our evening or bedtime routine is. Is it relaxing or is it stimulating? So what do we need as adults to have a relaxing night routine and get us ready to sleep, right? To prepare us for sleep. Right. It's not just sort of putting on pajamas. There are other things that lead up to that moment of feeling rested enough to go to bed. Exactly. Yeah. You've mentioned about having a routine. What are the other strategies that we can do during the day and as we get closer to bedtime to help us sleep better? So one thing is trying to have consistent bed and wake times. I know that's hard. Mm -hmm. We often have social jet lag and we sleep longer or sleep in on the weekends, but trying to have that consistent bed and wake time is really important. And I think that this is important in terms of our our daily schedules. Again, if you're working from home or uh, you're a student, sometimes work can creep in at all sorts of different times. And so really thinking about, okay, when do I want to go to bed? And give yourself a break. It's not going to be perfect all the time, but Mm -hmm. we can aim for consistency especially children and youth need a bit more sleep. And so we have to really think about that. Other strategies are, or you sleep what you eat or you drink. Mm-hmm. So nutrition certainly can impact our sleep, limiting caffeine later on in the day. Also making sure that we don't eat so late. Sometimes if you have a really heavy meal, it can keep you up because some people find that really hard to go to bed if they've just had a big meal. But you also don't want to go to bed hungry because being hungry can keep you up. And sometimes if you've had too much to drink right before you go to bed, too many fluids, sometimes it can keep you awake in the night of having to go to the bathroom. So those, you know, thinking about what you're eating or drinking is certainly important. Getting physical activity and getting physical activity outside. So Mm -hmm. both regular exercise or physical activity can help us sleep and exposure to bright light in the morning and throughout the day can also help us sleep. So those are, those are, you know, two things that can be interconnected. We talked about having a relaxing evening routine, but other things to think about are keeping your bedroom sleep friendly. So what does that mean? And especially for kids and families, there might be people sharing rooms or whatnot, but doing whatever you can to make your bedroom environment helpful for sleep. So considering the temperature, so keeping it cool, keeping it dark, keeping it quiet. Also reserve your bedroom for sleeping and sex. So get out the TVs, the phones and the computers and everything else. If you're working from home, don't be working from bed. So try to really reserve your bedroom and get the pets out of the bed if you can or out of the bedroom if you can, because they can really disrupt sleep. Mm -hmm. Lastly, give yourself a break from screens. It's so, so important. And we're learning more and more each day about the impact of screens in our sleep, not only from the blue light that's admitted, but also the stimulation that can happen from technology. So those are all some tips, but I would say overall, it It also is what works for you. So what works for some people, sometimes reading, uh, we talked about the relaxing night routine, sometimes reading stimulates people. And so if you find that reading a book, you can't put it down, you have to keep reading different pages, it stimulates you, that's maybe not a relaxing bedtime routine, even though for others it might be. So you have to figure out what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Good advice. And especially about getting outside, I think as Canadians, we need to make sure we get 
that sunlight during the day when it's out. Yeah, yeah, when it's when it's not night all day. Right. Yeah. Why do you think sleep is a good behavior to focus on in terms of school-based health promotion? And what do you think are the best strategies for helping students to learn about this and for them to actually get some more sleep? Yes. So I think I'm biased, but I think sleep is good to focus on for school-based health promotion because it's hard to focus on anything else if kids are tired. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that before. And so I think it is very foundational. I think you can focus on all sorts of different uh, health behaviors, but I think they're all interconnected. And without sleep, one piece of the puzzle is missing. So it's always interesting when we talk about how can we, uh, and this is a lot of research we're doing right now, is how do we improve school-based sleep promotion and why should we even do it, right? Because sleep doesn't happen at school, or at least we hope it doesn't happen <laughs> at school. It's happening at school lots right now, but because kids are tired, but that's not the goal. So we know that school experiences are certainly shaping positive sleep habits and that kids are taking the messages home. And we've done interviews with teachers and with parents and with students that everyone sees value in this. And we're really trying to figure out how to improve it. One of the first things that you can do as an educator and schools can do is, is really promoting positive sleep talk. So not talking about how few hours we got of sleep and really just talking about sleep with the kids. Mm-hmm and talking about the importance of sleep. So sometimes they haven't necessarily heard that, right? So that's one thing that can be done. We also know that there are certainly teaching and learning components. And so what do we know about how much sleep you need? And what are some of those habits or tips to get a good night's sleep? And so kids that learn those things through a school experience generally take those home. But we also know there needs to be a connection to the home because without enforcement or support, of the home environment for sleep, it's really difficult to action those items. And so we're looking at different ways to engage the home environment or engage families. And and generally that's through students of taking messages home and, and learning about it at school. But I think that there's still some work to be done there. We certainly know there's still some work to be done there. But these are some of the you know, starting points that we're working on. And I think that it's integrating from a teaching and learning component. There's certainly teaching components about sleep quantity and quality, but it's also integrating sleep into other subject areas. So when we're, you know, in in a math lesson, maybe we focus on counting the number of hours of sleep that we got as part of our, you know, adding or subtracting or tracking or whatnot. So there's ways to integrate sleep into other subject areas. And so I would say that that's one way to do it. Even small comments, I could see working, you know, asking, what did you dream about last night? Or even an art project, paint a dream that you've had, just bringing students awareness to this idea that sleep is an important part of our day. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah, it doesn't have to be huge. But like you said, an art project about your dream, that's awesome. That's a great way to bring sleep back into the discussion of the classroom. I think it's always important to think about how a well-meaning health promotion strategy can have negative unintended consequences. For instance, I'm thinking about my oldest who takes a while sometimes to fall asleep and can be a little bit of a worrier. So I could easily see him coming home after a day of learning about how important sleep was and it actually making him more anxious on those nights when he can't fall asleep. So how can we talk about sleep in a way that doesn't create that issue? I think this is so important because the the goal of creating healthy school communities is not to make 
people feel bad or have those unintended negative consequences. But I think we need to be aware that that can happen. And so I think we need to have empathy in our language and how we discuss health promotion. So for example, when we're talking about sleep, we're very cautious about talking about where we sleep Mm. or what home is. So home can look very different. It could be a hotel room. It can be an apartment. It can be a house. It can be so many different things. Uh, A bedroom might be shared. Maybe there isn't a bed. So I think that we need to really think about our language. And that can extend to being aware that some kids are going to have worries and that we need to to know that the goal isn't to make them feel worse about the situation, but to help them acknowledge their own strengths. So I think taking a strengths-based approach. So, you know, what helps you feel good when you're falling asleep? Uh, What can you think about? How can you build on those tools that you have? And so I think it's about creating a toolbox as opposed to focusing on the negative. We should focus on the positive. Mm -hmm. And also the idea that sleep is cumulative. It's not ruined in one night's bad sleep, you know, that it is ongoing, just like nutrition and exercise, that it's something that we can work on throughout our lifespan. A hundred percent. Like it, it's hard to change. I mean, it's, we know that it's hard to change health behaviors. And so sleep is no different and it takes time. And so those baby steps are super important of just saying, Hey, you learned about sleep. That's really great. You know, what can I do to support you or how can I support you? Or what do you think you're, you know, you're really good at what can, what works for you? So those are some, some tips, but I think listening and asking questions and uh, acknowledging that there's going to be big feelings that kids, you know, have a lot to say about some of these factors. So you've mentioned that technology is a big threat to our sleep and to our students sleep. What can teachers do to affect their approach to screens? It's hard. (laughs) Even parents struggle with this. But how could teachers maybe model or talk about technology in a way that might help students ultimately? You know, we talk a lot about technology because so much takes place on screens now. And so I think that the first is just acknowledging that and that sometimes we need to be on a screen. Mm -hmm. But realizing that there are some, you know, negative impacts of the blue light emitted on, you know, from a screen on your sleep. But there are filters that you can place on a phone or other things that you can do to limit your blue light. I think for teachers, it's when students are doing activities on the computer, maybe homework or things online, it's trying to support them and doing it during the day as opposed to late at night or into the morning or wee hours from an educational standpoint, but then also supporting them in turning off the screen and doing other activities when they're not doing schoolwork. So we know that we need to use screens for many of our schoolwork, especially in secondary settings. But when they're not doing schoolwork, what other things can you do? to fill your time. So get outside, move around. So that's one thing that teachers can promote and support. It's help students find ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Also, the stimulation from technology can create challenges in falling asleep. So if you're watching a show that has violence or action, that can create a lot of stimulation too. So it's not just the blue light, but it's the stimulation. And so, you know, putting on a filter doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a break from the negative impacts of screen. So I think that it's also as, as educators of thinking about does this activity or does this assignment need to be done on a computer? Or is there other ways that we can do that? 
and continuing to ask ourselves that question. And then also for ourselves, like, you know, what am I doing in my free time as an, as an adult? So how do I get off the screen? But it's hard. I mean, it's addictive and it's tough to, again, it's another habit that's hard to break. And so all of these things are, are interconnected, but make small changes. I think what you were just saying about technology is important, that it's not just the screen that is stimulating, but it's the content that is taking us to those screens. And especially for kids, the social connections that happen by texting or social media, those are really stimulating, you know, sometimes negative, sometimes positive. And historically, kids could leave those relationships at the end of the day at school. And now they're, they're coming into potentially their bedrooms. And so that's really hard to sleep if something's going on in your social world right then and now. It's so true. Both things that are positive as well as things that might be challenging in a social life. So say you have a new relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be disturbing to your sleep to wait for the text or the post or whatever it's going to be to happen. So it can be both the presence and the absence of, of communication, <laughs> yeah. right? And so we have learned that the presence alone of technology in the bedroom can impact sleep. So it has to be out of the bedroom. And it's not necessarily because there's binging. It can be because there's not binging. So if binging is even still a thing with text, I don't know what it is, some <laughs> kind of chime. Uh, so I think that that's one of the biggest tips is encouraging students as well as out of the classroom. So I know that there's some authorities or jurisdictions that have banned cell phones mm -hmm. in schools or that has to be in lockers. And there's been pushback too from parents because they want to communicate with, with their kids. And I think that we really need to look at this and say, why do we need cell phones in schools, in the classroom? It's distracting. It's distracting for the students. It's distracting for the teachers. I, I personally feel we could use a break from that. And students get enough of connectedness to their screens that wherever we can, I think that we need to think about finding a bit of a balance there. So get it out of the bedroom, hopefully get it out of the classroom or the school and find other ways to connect and communicate potentially. So I know I'm sounding very old about that, but. <laughs> no, you're, you're preaching to the choir. We don't let our kids have phones until they're in high school and they are mocked by their friends endlessly. And it kind of bugs me when teachers have them do something in class that might require a phone, mm. even in middle school. And it feels like, come on, I need you on my side here. Yeah. I mean, I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, so ask me in yeah. five, <laughs> five, 10 years where I'm at. But you know, right now that's where I'm at. So uh, feel free to take or leave my comments. But I'm not, I'm not living it yet. So as you know, having been the daughter of a teacher and granddaughter of two teachers, teaching is busy and complex. What would you say to a teacher who feels like health promotion or teaching about sleep is just one other thing on an already too long list of things to do. I agree. <laughs> and I have empathy. Uh, it can't be an add-on and it can't be just on the teachers. So it has to be embedded in the culture of the school. And that's not just you. We need to be able to support teachers and staff now more than ever, not make their job harder. I would also say that there's a lot of small wins using sleep as an example for an art project is one example. So I think that you can make a huge difference by being a role model and just being you and integrating it where you can. I think it's also important to know that you can't do this alone. So who are your allies? Who can support you? What resources are out there? Because there's a ton of resources that are out there. 
-hmm. We talked about the change doesn't have to be huge, but it takes time. And I think that you have to celebrate often and give yourself credit for those, those small wins of how, hey, I, I looked at this lesson plan a different way. It might be one strategy in a month that you've been able to, to integrate well-being into what you're doing, either for yourself or your students. And that can be huge. So it doesn't have to be this massive overhaul. It can be little things that make a big difference. But I would say also engage the students and, and they can walk the talk too. So but it certainly can't be an add-on. And I think that if you're trying to change everything for everyone, it's not going to happen. You have to have support and it has to be more than just you. So I guess I, I have a lot of empathy. <laughs> I have a lot of understanding. And I think that it is hard work, but it's meaningful work. And so that makes it the heart work, right? Mm-hmm. It's work that can be powerful and important along with everything else that you're doing as teachers and educators. Absolutely. As a teacher, it's rare that you get a lot of feedback. You know, those first years you might as you're navigating getting a contract and things like that. But often you go days or months without anyone telling you how you're doing as a teacher. And so that idea of celebrating maybe by yourself and noticing the things that you are doing, that will help to propel you in this because... Sometimes we have to do that for ourselves, reflect on what's going right and the things that we've done that that we're proud of. And focus on yourself first. That's okay. Mm -hmm. I think that especially for new teachers out there, I think it's, I've never personally experienced, you know, the first few years in a, that type of school environment, but I've certainly experienced teaching for the first time and the graduate environment. And Mm -hmm. it is hard. It is a lot of hours. It is a lot of time. And so if all you can do at this point is, Hopefully you're on a walk right now, just, you know, taking a deep breath, uh, that's going to have impact on your students. So even if health promotion or health and well-being isn't integrated into your classroom, it is if you're taking the time for yourself. So I think acknowledging that, especially in the first few years and forever, we need to continue to help ourselves in order so that we can help others and the kids in our classrooms. Such a good point. What do you wish all teachers knew about making health a priority in their work. Yeah. So I think that we have learned more and more about how important schools are within our society, especially for supporting the emotional and mental health and overall connectedness of children and families and communities. So when we are looking at making health and well-being a priority in our work, I think that We've really learned a lot throughout the pandemic. So throughout the COVID-19, we've really felt the impact on our children's teaching and learning, certainly. Uh, I always joke that Madame Mommy was not nearly as effective as Professor Story. And (laughs) so the teaching and learning component uh, very much suffered. However, I think we also really appreciated just how important schools are in our society, Mm -hmm. including the emotional and mental health and overall connectedness of our children. Mm as well as the connectedness of our families and communities. Schools are a place where children can feel safe, can play, can connect, can have fun, can eat, can sleep sometimes. And so schools are a place where we really see the social determinants of health and we really see how we can overcome some of the inequities in our society. And so I think that that's what I would want to get across of just in terms of of health and well-being and education, that it is all interconnected and that it is so important for all of us. And that, like I said, it doesn't need to be an add-on. It can just be your presence, but also recognizing that 
schools are so much more and they're so important. And I hope that the rest of the world has seen that. And I think that they have, but I think this is a good reminder. Mm -hmm. And lastly, what could a teacher do tomorrow if they wanted to help their students sleep or any other aspect of their health? I think it's just starting a conversation, asking questions. My daughter's favorite line is, I have a question. And I, I love that about her. And sometimes students haven't been asked, teachers haven't been asked. So ask the questions, ask how you can help them and how they want to be helped. But also ask that of yourself of like, how can I help myself? Uh, how can I help improve my, my health? And so those are the things I think you can do tomorrow is just ask the question and take baby steps. I have a question. I think it's as simple as that, right? Love that. Uh, this is putting you on the spot, but do you have any recommended resources for teachers that are interested more in sleep health or any other of the things that we've talked about? Yeah, there's some some great resources. I think firstly, uh, the 24-hour movement guidelines for children and youth as well as adults are really helpful just in terms of looking at quantity. Mm -hmm. As well, Participation does a report card each year. And there was one on our kids too tired to move. And there's a lot of really great resources in there. There's all sorts of organizations to look at, but I'd say those are really great places to start in terms of resources. We're working on how we can improve school-based uh, sleep promotion. And so one of the projects that my team runs is on sleep. And so we do regularly put resources on my website. And so that would be another place to go. And that's katestory.com. Okay, I will put those in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dr. Story, for coming onto the podcast to share about your research on comprehensive school health and your passion for sleep promotion. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and Everactive Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until the next time, the podcast is dismissed. <laughs>